Hey there, cats and kittens. Welcome to the time slot that used to be held by Legal Defense with Kirk and John. Now it's the groovy morning drive. Just kidding. It's Legal Defense with Kirk and John. I'm Kirk O'Bear. And I'm John Birdsall. Okay. Did I crack I you up on that That caught me off guard. So that was Yeah, very, you actually you thought you were going to have to do like morning drive type talk. That was very good. You know what I was thinking of? So in, um, in the Flintstones... Yeah. This is like the, the people listening aren't even going to know what the Flintstones is if they're younger. But um, uh, there was he used to they used to have this part where they uh, had like a DJ and um, <laughs> that's exactly how he talked. He's like, hey, cool cats. And- <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I always like to surprise you a little. You know, we we prep for the show and John's like, what are we going to talk about? And I'm like, well, this, that and we'll get it all set up. And well, you know. Always throwing for a loop. How I start. It's Christmas time, and we should have some fun. Yeah, despite the stresses of life, and <laughs> you know, oh, fun. we all have fun, them. Fun, and, fun is a rare commodity. Sometimes, you know, in the world. Yeah, I know. Um, but you know, this is. I don't know. Christmas is. I know you love Christmas, and I and I like. I love the idea of Christmas, and I love it when it is actually Christmas, but. There's a lot of the lead up that I, you know, ugh, and it's just, it creates stress all around. I, you know, I'm one of those people where pretty much any holiday creates stress for me in, in ways that I think is unhealthy for me, you know, like, I, uh, oh yeah, you're supposposed to take a couple of days off and, or a few days off and not think about work. Uh, yeah. Good luck I, yeah. with that. You know, well, I, uh, I don't get stressed around the holidays. I look forward to them. I enjoy the time off um, if I can take it, even though I know the storm that awaits when I return. Mm-hmm. But then again, um, I never regret taking the time off. You know, mm-hmm. I remember well, in, in law school, um, uh, there was this, you know, repeated attempts to get people to go out uh, to happy hours on Friday afternoons. And um, I'll never forget this. One of my fellow students told me, she's, she said, she goes, Hey, you're never going to remember that Friday afternoon that you spent studying. <laughs> <laughs> and, I, and I was like, All right. Well, you well, can say that about any day that you spent studying. I, like, I, you know, but I couldn't argue I, with it. You know, I got I mean, my final exam for evidence tomorrow, but, uh, you know, I could go out and get schnockered instead. I, but I couldn't argue with it. And, you know, I feel, you know, holidays are kind of the same way. And, um, you know, it, uh, the, the, just the workload enough right now is stressful. But the holidays, no, that's that's not. And really, Kirk, all you have to do is watch a Hallmark movie. And, <laughs> you know, everything turns out OK. So, Great. you know, I saw stress. I don't know what I was looking at. It was a thing on Facebook or something. And I saw an ad for a pair of socks and, and like you're supposed to read them as let's say you're on the couch and your feet are facing the person who's reading, you know, it's like on the bottom of the socks, it says on one side, it says, leave me alone. And on the other side, it says I'm watching Hallmark movies. <laughs> um, the bottom of the socks thing is, is, um, is, is, is like got all sorts of permeations. So one is um, something like, um, uh, one so- one foot says get me, and the other one says a beer. 
<laughs> if you're in the mood for something else, could you change the, you know, I, the I suppose. Yeah. I don't know if they come in other flavors, but <laughs> mix and match. That's pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, um, I heard a rumor. I, I don't know if this is true, but perhaps you can true. confirm or deny or give me a Glomar response. Um, do you know what that means, by the way? Do you know what a Glomar response is? No. Well, do you remember what the Glomar was? No, I, well, I know on. there's a it's congressman awesome. called Gomar, but... Um, no, no, this is Glomar. Okay. This all has to do with um, a Russian submarine that sank, and there were there was an effort to retrieve it without the, the Soviets uh, figuring out what we were doing. So, uh, remember... Howard Hughes, I believe, you know, the super oh, rich yeah. guy, of course. he, he uh, built this vessel called the Glomar for, you know, global marine exploration. And it was really, they were trying to raise the wreckage of this, uh, oh, and I don't, uh, was it a Soviet sub? Or was it an American sub? I think it was a Soviet sub. Anyway, um, <clears throat> and they, uh, they weren't able to raise it, at least that's what the report later um revealed and for years and years and years they uh the u.s denied that there was any effort to uh, retrieve the nuclear weapons on the submarine and the soviets denied that there was even an incident where they lost a nuclear weapon submarine and then i think it was many many years later um after you know the soviet union fell apart and russia became its own independent government um they did return a portion of the ship. It was like the ship's uh, bell or something like that. The submarine bell to um, the Russian government in a ceremony, which was kind of a, a gotcha kind of thing. Like, yeah, we did. Uh, did. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, ever since then, that's been an expression. A Glomar response means I can neither confirm nor deny. That's that's oh, I see. called a Glomar response. Anyway, I, I have a grim thought. Are, I hope everybody survived from that or no. No one survived from that. Yeah. yeah. No, not a, no one. Not a, a no one. That might be the case, but. Yes. Um, but anyway, the rumor I heard. Okay. Was that once again, someone at our law firm, Birds All Bear and Associates, has been tapped to be a commentator once again on court TV. I don't know if that's true, but do you know anything um, about this? Well, uh, let me search my memory. The, I'm going to do like what they do in um Congressional uh, <laughs> congressional hearings where the witness just doesn't want to answer, and he's like, um, "Like, I'm going to have to search my recollection on uh, to see if there's a glimmer of a fact or um, an inference of a fact upon which I can answer that question." Um, you know what? Uh, Ken Starr used to do that very yeah. famously. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm have to search my recollection for that. I'm like, all right, come on. Um, so the answer to your question, good sir, is that yes, it is I. It is that was I. a lot of fanfare just to get to the point. But yes, yes, was, yes. <laughs> you have once again. I mean, you now that I have quite, searched my recollection, I do recall that you've become quite Disney. popular on on the court television there. So. Well, it's, uh, it's it's kind of you know what I, you know what I enjoy about it. It's the same thing I enjoy about the show, which is um, taking the opportunity to explain what are oftentimes complicated legal situations in everyday terms that people can understand. Because um, 
because I think that's very important. I think people need to have an actual, like, firm understanding of how the legal system works, the trial level or appellate level or Supreme Court or whatever it is, and um, and not just, like, fall back into, like, political tribalism or something like that and just say, mm-hmm. oh, you're awful, oh, you're great, or you're evil, you know, whatever, you know. And because because it's really at its, you know, most ideal form is supposed to be this, you know, objective arbitrator of not truth. Truth, but the truth. Least, no. it, well, it's <laughs> should supposed be. to be the truth. But, you know, you could argue, philosoph- philosophers have argued what truth is forever. So, but right. it's, it's more like, you know, what a reasonable outcome should be or, and, but just to look at it without, um, passion and, uh, you know, hysteria and, you know, in most cases don't present that, but some do like Rittenhouse or the Arbery case in Georgia or, you know, any other number of cases, OJ, you know, you could just go on down the list. But, um, uh, but that's one of the reasons that, you know, having a sober, uh, rational, dispassionate process is so important. Mm-hmm. In my opinion. Well, and I think it, they asked me to do a little bit of that kind of stuff with the New York times and everything, but you've been, you've been a repeat source that they've been going towards. And so you must be impressing somebody out there. Maybe you're, maybe you're saying the things they want to hear, or maybe you're giving them the intellectual, uh, challenge that they're really looking for. I can well, say I always, I, the reason they have me back is because I always lead with the first words out of my mouth is core TV is great. <laughs> And then, and then I, I explain whatever the question is. Right, 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 right. <laughs> but I, I have noticed, you know, I, I'm well aware of your previous commentary, but you don't say the stuff that we normally hear. Uh, and I know that they, this isn't their fault. They don't normally know who to get in contact with uh, when they're just out there looking for lawyers, but they tend to get people that are either uh, not very well experienced on the defense side of things, or they are, former prosecutors from 20 years ago and never did any more casework. And now they're a law professor someplace, or it's just somebody that has the, like the obvious answers like, well, what the defense needs to do here is defend the case very well. You know, like a John Madden response, like, yeah, you know, <laughs> John Madden's like, you know, what, what they could use right now uh, would be a touchdown. That would be a good thing for this team. And, if they and were if to- they get a touchdown, that means they get six points. If they, this right, extra point. Now, right now would be a perfect time for them to throw a pass that's received and then run all the way down into the end zone for a touchdown. That would be perfect right now. All right. We got to take a break, but we'll be right back. And we are back. And you know what? This what? segment, we might as well talk about some law. Oh, let's do that. <laughs> we just we just spent 15 minutes talking about not law. Well, you know, I mean, you, you, you can't be... Too serious all the time. I mean, uh, I do enjoy that serious <laughs> discussions, but um, uh, but that's the same reason that I, you know, do improv and do silly stuff and you know make dumb jokes. <laughs> right now, but whatever. Um, but but yeah, the uh, the case actually that's coming up in Wisconsin is. Um, in Milwaukee County and involves a, it got some decent amount of press because the, it was a murder case and the gentleman that got killed was an immigration lawyer 
who was in the car with his wife, and um, there was a gentleman that was on his bike, and apparently either was like out in the road or something, and the wife that was driving had to swerve and just missed him, and then they turned onto Brady Street, and uh, and this is captured on a uh, like a city surveillance camera. Uh, and the car pulls over. The husband gets out, the lawyer, and has a confrontation with the guy on the bike. And you can't really tell what's going on there. Like, like it's kind of grainy. It's kind of like far away. But uh, the guy on the bike shoots him. Wow. Now, I don't know exactly. Like, the, the, the reporting doesn't detail, like, um, you know, he did this, that, the other thing, or the, the guy from the car did this, that, the other thing. So I don't have any details about that, but the defense is self-defense. So I know this hmm. because, because his lawyer said this, and his lawyer then said that um, he's going to testify. So he's already mm-hmm. broadcast that. Oh, which is, what? What? what, what, what? Yeah, and the tri- when is the trial happening? The trial's January 3rd. All right. So he's telling the, the press ahead of time that his client's going to testify? Yep. Absolutely. Oh, good heavens. He, <clears throat> well. And they've also hired the same defense <clears throat> on use of force uh, that the defense used in the Rittenhouse case. Oh, boy. So the this general, is like Rittenhouse Jr. or senior. Oh, or how, I don't know. What do you, how do you look at this? Uh, so, somehow the facts don't – the facts as you described them – I'm afraid, and I'm never one to judge things, uh, you know, very quickly, but my, you know, oftentimes with a case where someone is dead and where self-defense is the issue, it is kind of interesting just to get someone's take on the basic scenario and just in terms of getting an idea as to whether it's, it's something that you would entertain as a possibility given what happened. And that sounds like it's farcical. It sounds ridiculous. I'm afraid. I mean, again, I don't know um, the details, and I'm sure you'll get into it when you're doing your coverage of it. But, uh, you know, if if the guy is getting out on the passenger side of, and the vehicle is stopped and the other dude has, you know, a bicycle, he's actually better equipped to get away <laughs> than if he were merely on foot. And uh, do you know anything about did, well, did the, the immigration lawyer – display a weapon or See, anything there's there's scant facts about this okay and i've been toying with the idea of calling the lawyer who represents him who i know but mm-hmm. i you know, know him as well ob- yes. obviously you know that lawyer would not be able to discuss it um and if he did unless he, would, he, unless he were willing to discuss it with someone in the media which apparently he already has <laughs> so maybe uh, he would maybe i'll give him a maybe he would you never know give him a call but um I, I think the real um, point here is that uh, that you know the guy on the bike has a weapon. That's interesting to start with. Mm-hmm. So I didn't mention that the guy on the bike is black. The immigration mm-hmm. lawyer, I think, is either white or Hispanic. I, I think he's white. Um, and so there's been a lot of like racist hoopla that's saying that this is racially motivated. Mm. Um, or something, or it's like this, you know, there's family comes forward. They're doing media interviews saying this isn't his character. This isn't what he would do. I don't know. You know, I, 
I don't know. It yeah. seems like kind of upside down to me. I don't can't know. Really clean a lot from the video. I take it. There's not a whole lot of. No, no. Okay. They, you know, if it was, it was, you know, the, the one thing about Rittenhouse is it wasn't just one video. There was like a lot of them. Numerous. So there's and, no FBI drone video in this case. It's going to be enhanced no. beyond the capability no. of being able to deliver it to the defense because it's too high definition. Or oh, they're going to wait till the middle of trial. Middle of trial. To do yeah, that. they're going to wait till the middle of trial. Well, let's talk about that uh, expert issue because I remember when I heard about this going on in the Rittenhouse case that I, I kind of looked sideways at what I was reading. Not not quite understanding what was going on. And I do have to say that I think part of the nuance of how it became relevant, if it ever did, in that case is that Judge Schrader made a very limited, uh, he put horse blinds barriers on what the defense was going to be able to do with it. And only to the extent that it raised, that there was some issue raised by the prosecution. Um so as it turned out, that person was able to testify, and I'm not sure it was terribly helpful for the defense, but winning the case, you can't go back and say what thing it was. Was it the crying on the stand? Was it the use of force expert that didn't get to testify about use of force necessarily? If you recall, this dude got to basically talk about distances and time measurements and things like that that you could glean from watching the video, but he added some expertise to it because of the fact that he tried to add some life to what you were otherwise watching in a, you know, in the courtroom. So, um, yeah, I, you know, you know, normally a use of force person is going to have to, you know, in its classic sense, let's talk about what a use of force expert usually entails. Usually there's somebody who testifies on behalf of a police officer when the officer is uh, either, you know, sued for or being prosecuted for, um, you know, uh, use of excessive force under the circumstances that they're met with. And, of course, what's relevant there is the training that an officer receives and how they're, you know, supposed to look at everybody like a suspect and how they're supposed to be vigilant, hypervigilant, and, uh, on, you know, understanding that they possess a weapon that other people can see, part of wearing the badge and the uniform, part of being an identified armed officer in public. All of that contributes to that part of the analysis. If you're getting into a whole self-defense type thing, the traditional look at this is that how on earth can you get into a defendant's mind and explain what the defendant was thinking? You can... Mm -hmm. Because you can present what what the person was faced with. You can look. You can try and present objective evidence of what happened sequentially, but you can never get inside that person's brain and have somebody else testify about what the thought was. You know, you present that by the defendant getting on the stand and saying, "I feared for my life, and here's why." Well, that you know, when I was comment commenting on Court TV about the Rittenhouse case, I was asked, you know, is he going to testify? And I said, well, <laughs> you kind of have to, this is before, you know, mm -hmm. they had arrested their state's case, but I said, well, you know, I mean, you kind of have to, in self-defense cases, operate the presumption that, um, that the defendant has to testify because in most cases, there's no other evidence. <clears throat> there's no, surveillance there's no blah 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 you know but today 
you know, there's surveillance all over the place, number one. Number two, in Rittenhouse, there was tons of it. And so mm-hmm. my comment was, and I talked to you about this at the time, I remember, right. um, that, you know, I would have probably not called him, although I heard. I wouldn't have either, <laughs> to I be heard, honest. I heard, you know, um, Mark Richards' explanation afterwards about the mock trials they did. And and his comment was that they did multiple mock trials and some with him not testifying and some with him testifying. And he said that it wasn't even a close call mm-hmm. that he had to testify. Mm-hmm. And, so, mm-hmm. and so that was a risky call. Mm-hmm. It paid off for them, you know. But, you know, at the same time, it's it's uh, it's it's a nerve wracking thing to put a client on the stand any time, even the most prepared client. Yeah. You know? Well, okay, and and I understand what you're saying about the mock trials that they did in the Rittenhouse case, but isn't it also true that the majority of the gifts that were handed to the defense in the case happened during the trial? All the all that good stuff. Oh yeah. That, that resulted in them winning. They didn't oh, yeah. even know it was going to happen. You know. All look, the cross examinations of the state's witnesses were really, I mean, brilliance, maybe like a like a hyperbolic term, but you know, they were pretty damn good, and yeah. it was pretty impressive what they had to do. But let's pick this up on the other side. All right, we'll see you in a second. Welcome back to the show, and more about defense experts. And our very own defense expert, John Birdsall, Esquire. Well, wow. Okay. Well, maybe I should put that on my business cards. But um, <laughs> <laughs> renowned defense expert, nationwide, nationally recognized commentator on court TV. So what we were talking about was, um, I'm just going to ignore you. So uh, what we were talking about was, uh, you know, having clients testify in self-defense cases and it was strange that a lawyer would signal in advance that his client was going to testify. Right. Even, even if, you know, I mean, I think that's kind of, unless you're like super certain that that absolutely has to take place, it's better to wait. Well, they know? didn't do it in the Rittenhouse case. Did they? In the Rittenhouse, they said, you know, they kind of alluded to it. Maybe it might happen, but they didn't say, yes, he's going to testify. Right. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of criminal defense 101. You right. know, I mean, <laughs> because because once a client takes the stand, the burden of sh- the burden of proof, even though it's still beyond a reasonable doubt, blah, blah, blah. In real life, it kind mm-hmm. of levels the playing field. Well, yeah. Well, the way I always explain it is that. You can have the best case in the world. You can poke as many holes in the prosecution's case as you can possibly imagine. They can fail on so many levels. But if you put the defendant on the stand, what jury is going to vote not guilty if they don't like the person? Or if they're if it all comes down to they're analyzing things like body language, the person's posture, how the, the inflection in their voice, do they seem like those are crocodile tears or are they real tears? You know, and... It, a jury, even if the state has failed to meet its burden of proof, is going to have great difficulty acquitting somebody if they just don't find him believable. I mean, mm-hmm. you put it all in, you put it all on the line right then and there. 
So, they have so in other words, everything it goes person. from beyond a reasonable doubt to more like the civil standard, which is, right. um, you know, the scales of justice are tipped 51-49 or 49-51 or, you know, whatever mm-hmm. numbers you want to choose to tip the scales just a little bit in one favor right. or the other. No, I'm not saying that I'm not saying that I tend to prefer not having my defendant testify. And by the way, it's the defendant's choice always. Um, usually the defendant, the accused, the client, as it were, wants some advice from the lawyer. And what our practice is, is that we will give input and give advice, but it's ultimately not uh, the defendant's is, decision. The defendant is, makes the choice and it's not the lawyer's choice. Is the that point. is a fundamental Fifth Amendment principle. And right. I have a case right now, like exactly like that, where objectively speaking, if you look at the case, it's a federal carjacking case. Um, if you look at it, it's very winnable. Um, and on its face without him testifying, but he is convinced he needs to testify. And I understand his reasons. He's got some good reasons, frankly, but I also have tried to dissuade him. Mm-hmm. And since trial is January 10th, I have, I'm oh. done dissuading him. I'm going to stop because it's his decision and it might be a decision I don't agree with. Right. Perhaps we should tell any prosecutors in that case that might be listening right now to, you know, just politely turn the radio off. I'm just kidding. <laughs> you can be vague enough about it so that they won't know. Although I'm fairly I'm sure confident these particular prosecutors are not listening. But. I'm sure they know. Oh, they're they're busy working on trial prep right now. Like you should be. You know. <laughs> oh, I have been. I have been very much. <laughs> but uh, you know, it's it's well. Just to get back to the concept of self-defense, you know, you were saying, well, you know, how, how do people look at things from their perspective? Cause that's what the law is. You have to look at things from, you know, what the person felt at that time. That's why so many people have to testify in self-defense cases. Right. Because, because they it's have a state to, of mind. Yeah. They're the only people that can say that. But at the same time, I, and I don't know if this is true, but, if provocation is involved in this bike lawyer, you know, confrontation, mm-hmm. provocation is like an objective measure. Right. And so that's very confusing. It is because the jury has to decide if there was or wasn't provocation. They do that from the evidence, not from anyone's state of mind. Then right. we talk about switching burdens and all kinds of stuff. And that's boy, I'll tell you, you know, I mean, I could see jurors just like throwing up their arms and saying, uh, okay, well, I have no idea what any of this means. Yep. And oh, we got a dead guy and we got a defendant and, uh, yeah. well, okay, defendant loses. That's, you know, <laughs> you unfortunately, know, you fear that those things happen. So what we're referring to is our jury instructions, which are drafted by, you know, committees of professors and judges and blah, 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 to try and, you know, normalize and, you know, make consistent how juries are instructed to apply the law. And so uh, <laughs> the problem is, is that, you know, that law professors and lawyers and judges, uh, we all like work in this world of um, uh, the ivory tower, like, like fancy words and, you know, and, 
and things like that. And when you read them to the we live in legal fiction. And so we fictionalize that when we read these complicated words that have many meanings to anybody reading them, um, that jurors are going to understand them. It's weird. It's just weird. It but is really I weird. I don't know a better system, but, you know. Well, and we've gone we've gone at length on the problem some of the problems with the jury instruction, especially that instruction one hundred forty that um really you know, it looked like there might be some move toward change on that, but that I don't want to get into it now, but we've already talked about it. Maybe we'll talk about it some other time when we're when there might be another chance at revising that, but it's basically an old prosecutor's trick that's thrown in there. But anyway, um getting back to the case at hand. Um you know I think this is fascinating because, first of all, I would have thought Court TV had had their fair share of uh, Wisconsin self-defense cases. murder cases <laughs> murder cases in the southeastern portion of Wisconsin. You know, I don't know. But, um, yeah, wow. Uh, so when did you say this happening? First week in January? Yep. Well, you're going to be in that trial, too. So how are you going to do both things at the same well, time? Well, this is the week before that. I see. I get it. I get it. All right. Well, um, let me ask you this. I I know people often ask me questions about experts, especially, um, you know, when someone's thinking about hiring our firm or somebody that sees something on TV about an expert and, and what they can or can't do. And I have found over the years, and I'll tell you, I think my method's probably a little different from most, but I've ended up... Um, just establishing my contacts over the years and having people that I talk to regularly. And if you, if you form a, a close enough, you know, sort of respectful relationship with these, these experts and these consultants, oftentimes they will let you know if your theory is FOS, you know, full of stuff um, and it's <laughs> not worth it to call them or hire them. I mean, I could name a few right now that you're, you're well aware of very, very good experts that are honest and have their integrity and, and stand up well, but they'll also tell you right off the bat, uh, your theory about this is nonsense, Kirk. So forget about it. Um, but I, I think sometimes clients think, and, and there are lawyers out there that I know of that think experts are the answer to every problem that you could possibly have. And I understand that sentiment because for so many years, the only real experts that existed in the in the criminal realm of the court system are ones that were manufactured by the prosecution or the government, so to speak, in the process of enhancing, you know, or creating forensics in air quotes, which uh, we all know is has become a very very bad thing in the context of uh, seeking the truth of the matter. Um, but I, you know, I find it. I'd say probably. One out of 10 or fewer cases are ones where I need to actually bring an expert in and testify. Probably fewer than one out of 10 in my experience. And I wonder if that compares, I mean, you and I had our own separate practices for many years, but I wonder, and you, would you normally go in with the assumption on some types of cases that you're, you know, you're going to call an expert or, you know, you're going to employ somebody for that purpose or what are your thoughts on that? So, yeah, um, there's, several types of cases that I pretty routinely look for experts. And one is like a child sexual assault, which I know 
you know, just as soon as you say those words or they read the charges or something like that to a jury, they are people's, you know, eyes glaze over. Mm -hmm. uh, but the reason is, is because um, children, oh, well, maybe we have to like run out of time here, but pick this up in the next um, segment. Uh, but it's you'll 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 be very happy you waited. OK, yeah. Wait, wait those two and a half minutes because you're going to love it. All right, we'll be right back. We are back with more legal defense or, hey, <laughs> groovy cats and chicks. Oh, wait, wait, what? No. You just uh, don't do it as well. I'm sorry. I don't, I, don't, I, don't, I don't mean to brag here, but. I don't, uh, no, you have, you have it covered. I'm, I'm, I'm I resigned. But getting back to child sexual assault. <laughs> so <laughs> everyone's favorite. When children are witnesses, um, they are interviewed in child advocacy centers, which are the CAC um, things where they do like recorded interviews, like video, audio recording. And um, and we have found, we being the legal community, over decades, um, how easily children are misled and let, you know, just like manipulated. And um, so there was protocols developed to try and make those interviews more reliable because, you know, children are children, right? They just, they don't tell stories well. Um, and, and, and oftentimes they're either like trying to please adults or they're influenced by repeated interviews before they get it on the camera, that sort of thing. So mm -hmm. there's people that are experts on this very subject child psychologists and 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 that's and th that's an area that I always look at experts you know yeah even, I, I usually do especially but I've had so many of those cases one thing I can tell you they they always call it the CAC interview the child advocacy center interview which ideally what's supposed to happen although this isn't true in every single case before a child alleged victim has to tell reveal the details of what allegedly happened too many times they want to get the person in to have a recorded interview with a uh, a you know a specialist in this area that knows how to go through um they used to refer to it as the stepwise protocol they don't use that terminology anymore for well, some there's reason. A variety but you know. yeah there's a variety of them basically there's different parts to it you establish the child's understanding of you know what what the process is going to be, you know, establishing a rapport. It's supposed to phase into this um, process where you determine if the child knows the difference between telling the truth and telling a lie. If the child knows what could happen if you tell a lie, is it like, is it a bad thing or not? Um, then they're supposed to give examples of things that are tr true and things that are false. And they're supposed to talk about, how, you know, only the truth is going to be told and blah, 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 blah. So there are times when things vary from that. And, you know, it's interesting because there isn't really any case out there that holds if that protocol is not followed, that it becomes inadmissible. You know, um, you'd have to show that something is tainted beyond, you know, basically beyond all repair <laughs> in order to get that type of ruling. And frankly, I've never had a judge rule that way in any case I've ever had. But um, 
but you're right. You know, there are experts that go beyond just the mechanics of how an interview is supposed to go. And that's, there's one thing I've found to be more and more puzzling as I go on through the years of my career is that part of what we deal with um, on an ongoing basis are the frailties of the human brain. And it can be an adult brain. It can be a child child's brain. But it, it always fascinates me to think, just for example, think of your earliest childhood memory that you have. And mm-hmm. in your mind, it's, you know, what's the most vivid thing that you can recall with crystal clarity? And, and I'll give you my example. For some reason, when I was very, very little, I must have been like two and a half or three years old. I remember telling my, I was looking at the cover of a book. I still remember it was a little red riding hood book by the golden books, you know, those kids books. And I just, I I told myself, I'm going to remember this. And I I like focused on it. And and just to test my memory is when I'm starting to become aware of what memory even was. Right. So in my mind, because I told myself, I, I forced myself to have that image in my head. I, I knew just every time I try and recall that, I have a picture in my head. Now, this is what's fascinating to me. There are no actual brain cells in my head now that existed when I made that you know, picture impression. That's true. They've all been replaced by other brain cells. That's and, true. And whatever, whatever chemical process is going on there with all the ele- electricity flowing around and all the chemical sloshing in my brain, somehow it it preserves that neurological you know, phenomenon over the years. And, well, and that's the thing that's so troubling about memory in particular is that people will be absolutely convinced that their memory is correct, even when they're flat out completely wrong. It's well, that, that is so true. And, and this comes up so often in the context of eyewitness testimony. And, um, you know, you know, you've heard the old uh, story about, you know, hey, give me five people who witnessed a car accident and I'll give you people that will tell five different stories. Right. About who went through the red light. And and the same goes true in our business with um, uh, eyewitness identifications and photo arrays and how they're conducted. And, you know, even prosecutors and Justice Department have, you know, established guidelines to make them more reliable because um, I'm going to say probably at least 50%, and I forgot what the exact statistic is, but 50 to 60% of all wrongful convictions are based on false eyewitness testimony. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I've done a ton of, work in this area in terms of cases I've had with photo arrays. I mean, I remember I have a case right now where um, the detective did a photo array and it was just like the most horrendous thing ever. And I had him on the stand testifying about how he did it. And he'd been on, he'd been a police officer for 19 years. It was the first time he ever did a photo array. (laughs) That must've been juicy. And (laughs) not only did he not, follow the state department of justice guidelines. Um, he flat out like, like just like disregarded them. In fact, he didn't know they existed. Hmm. And so you I know, thought you would say he knew they existed, but he threw them out the window and did it. No, 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 no. He threw them out the window without knowing they existed. <laughs> the point is, is that, you know, um, 
things like in, like saying, hey, yeah, thanks. You, you did a great job. That's the guy. That's the guy we were looking for. Things like that, you know, like bolster people's confidence or um, if they're kind of unsure and you kind of coax them or, hey, why don't you take a look at this one again? You know, those sorts of things are very, very subtle mind games in in identifying somebody. And it happens all the time. And it's very disturbing because we're talking about people's liberty. Right. You know, well, you know that's it, when, when we've talked, you and I have talked many times about areas where we need justice reform or criminal process reform. And one of the things that leads, one of the big things that leads to wrongful convictions, and for that matter, one of the things that leads a lot of cases to be charged that never should have been charged to begin with, is the fact that law enforcement is affiliated with and aligned with the prosecution of the case. Well, you and, describe the whole law and order series right there. Right, well, right when they say the, yeah, they even leave out the defense when they say there's two important parts of the case. It's the the cops and the prosecutors who prosecute yeah. on behalf of the cops. Yeah. I mean, what about the defense lawyer? That's pretty important, right? When I get mad at prosecutors, sometimes I'll remind them that they can't get any convictions without a defense lawyer. I mean, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you wouldn't get to convict anybody if not for me, if not for my job. They're, you know? they're so <laughs> upset about that whole Sixth Amendment right to counsel uh, thing. Oh, geez. Why well, do we girl. have to do this? But, but you know, think about it. Don't, this is one of the most common questions I get from people I'm representing is, where were the cops that were investigating my side of the story or what happened to me or how I was a victim of circumstance and all this, this stuff. We don't, that's not part of their job. And they, they'll act like we're there to gather the facts. No, you know, when you're doing a lineup or a show up or, you know, you already know who you think the perp is. And there's all these subtle little things that happen consciously or subconsciously, because look, what feels better than to be on the winning team, right? Doesn't it feel good to win? You know, and I know well, prosecutors yeah. that, get, that get like so bent out of shape if they lose one trial, like it's the end of their lives. You know, we don't have time to go into all the facts, <laughs> but the, the case that jumps to mind is the Central Park Five. Yes. Five teenagers who all confessed to this violent, awful rape of this woman in Central Park. And they were all false confessions. And they all spent time in prison. Um, until it was Over a decade that yeah. um, this other guy ultimately confessed and the DNA match and the whole thing. And they were all actually innocent yeah. and they were just kids. Even right till the end, they had the prosecutors fighting against the idea that they, they could actually be innocent, even though the science proved oh, it. Oh, oh <laughs> my gosh. Beyond that's, any reasonable doubt. All right. Well, that's all the time we have, John. I'm sorry. Uh, but, we have uh, so much to go over. We'll but, have to okay. move on to your more you know famous TV crowd. But, yeah, I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> I'm very important. Yes. Yes. Sorry about that. <laughs> anyway, you can tune in next week. Hopefully, we'll have John if he hasn't gone off to Hollywood by next week. And uh, every Saturday morning between oh. 8 and 9, right here on 1330 and 101.5 WHBL, it's been Legal Events be with Kirk and John. I'll be on my yacht. All right. See you then. Bye. Bye.